Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, you can't change the world, but you can make a dent. Except at the box office, you can't make a dent there. This is Death to Smoochie. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Death to Smoochie, which we're going to be talking about today. Oh boy. How, How does that make you feel? It doesn't make me feel great, but we'll get into it. All right. But before we get into Smoochie, Ian, how are you doing this week? I have some positive things in my life, making progress on some long-standing issues, like home maintenance kind, but they're kind of painful, mm. so I don't know if it's a good or bad. I finally got the landlord to fix the stain that was slowly spreading on my bedroom wall behind my head while I sleep. Oh, no. It turned out to be the upstairs neighbor's poo pipes leaking, which is not, not great. Yeah. And the plumber came in and tore open the wall and changed out the pipe, and, and it wasn't too stinky, but I've got a torn open wall in my bedroom, and I've got work people coming in and out of the apartment where I'm trying to stay isolated. So it's like a mix, some good, some bad. I'm looking forward to getting it all cleaned up and painted and have a nice place again though. So that's something to look forward to. We talk every single day and I had no idea any of this was happening. <laughs> you really are the uh, consummate professional, Ian. There's just, keep following it all inside. There's just <laughs> too much going on. I didn't have time. I'm too busy pushing my bed around and throwing tarps over it. Yeah, what are you doing? Fun. You sleeping on the couch tonight or what's going no, on? No, I'm able to. So far, they've only come in the morning and been done before noon. So I just just that I got to get up early, push the furniture around, make access, and then put it all back at night. Gotcha. All right. Well, we had our first like real snowstorm of the season okay. today. Not storm so much, but you know, a significant accumulation, like five, six inches, which I hear is plenty. So that was fun and had to get up early, snow blow the driveway. Some of oh, yeah. to go to work because I work in my home, so I don't yeah. have to worry about that. But she does. And plus, you should clear your driveway just for delivery people or sure. general mental health. <laughs> Look out and see a mound of snow. It doesn't make you feel good. You got to let your spouse go to work and you got to let your Amazon guy come and drop off some fun stuff. So yeah, needs to be done when you own the home. That's right. I'm getting a new office chair delivered any day now. So I, I got to make sure they can get here because I'm very excited. Oh yeah. You'd hate to have that unable to deliver message come up no, on that's the phone. Worse, especially because yeah. I'm home all day. Makes me feel terrible. Yeah, those are too frustrating. Like, I was here. Where's yeah, my stuff? So, no, I'm not giving them any reason to not deliver my new Secret Lab office chair. Very so. fun. Did you have a chance to watch anything not podcast related this week that you maybe wanted to talk about? I did. I made a chance because one of our favorite guys, McGruber, is back on the airwaves. McGruber. Um, uh, that was one of our early episodes of this podcast. We did McGruber, and that was my introduction to him. Episode eight? Yeah. With Pallavi? Yeah. Good episode. Yeah. That was fun, and that introduced me to him, and I fell in love with him. I Somehow I had missed him for all the years since the movie had come out, and now there's a sequel. It's a series. It's on Peacock Premium. You have to pay the Peacock to watch his show. But if you're a fan of the movie, I think it's totally worth it. If you're not a fan, I'm not sure. It's eight episodes, but it's basically like a one big four-hour movie. It's a fully serial drama. So it's kind of drawn out at that length, but 
it got me a bunch of hearty, real laugh out loud moments in it for me. So I fully endorse it for that reason. And also almost for Lawrence Fishburne alone. He is in this. Oh, our boy. He's so good. Yeah. He loved Lawrence. I didn't (laughs) know he was, I didn't know he was in the series. And I know Yorm is back uh, directing it. That's exciting. Is our boy Piper back? Yes, he is. Do we get to see some Piper? Yeah. Ryan Phillippe's back. It's full of good people. It's really, it's really fun. I can't wait to hear what you think because you introduced me to McGruber. Yeah. I was a big McGruber fan. I've just, I know the show is out. I have access to it. I've just been caught up in other stuff going on and it got put on the back burner, but no longer. I'm more or less caught up on all my shows. Nice. A lot of them are ending, like Yellow Jackets is ending in a couple weeks. Succession just ended. Dexter is ending soon. That'll free up a lot of my nights. I'm just going to sit down this weekend, I think, and try to bang out MacGruber because, yeah, you're right. I'm like a MacGruber super fan. What am I doing in my life if I can't find four hours? <laughs> yeah. It's been a season of riches for us this holiday season. So many movies and good TV shows coming out. It is hard to find your way through all of them, but this one is one that I think is worth digging for. Speaking of good movies that came out, I saw a movie that I really enjoyed. It's a little bit of Tough one to talk about just because its subject matter is a tad risque, let's say. But I got a chance to check out Red Rocket from Sean Baker. Ah. Sean Baker's a filmmaker who I really like. I've seen both of his prior movies, Tangerine and The Florida Project. Really like The Florida Project quite a bit. And Red Rocket stars Simon Rex as a down-on-his-luck porn star who has to return to his depressed hometown of Texas City, Texas, which I believe is outside Houston. Okay. It's a real place. Real place. Yeah. Texas City, Texas is a real place. And it does an interesting thing that's become common more on TV than in movies, I think, which is it presents you with this protagonist, but he's a protagonist, but not even close to a hero. He's not even really an anti-hero. He's just a, a real bad person. Okay. But since you spend so much time with him, you can't help but get attached to him along the way. And he does some really bad stuff. Like, I can't stress enough. He's a bad okay. dude. But <laughs> You're not endorsing him. No, not endorsing him at all. But you still want to spend time in the movie's universe. And with him, it's just, you can't look away. It's a long movie too, but it, it flies by. And I, I can't recommend it enough. It's kind of a comedy, kind of a drama, more like a slice of life type thing, but a slice of a bad life. Very well made, well acted. Baker's always had a gift for finding people to fill out his movies. He usually has one or two names that you recognize in his films. And then the rest, he just finds non-actors or local people to wherever he's setting his project to give it a real authentic flair. And this is no exception. He gets some really good performances out of non-actors or new actors Uh in, uh, in this movie. So definitely check it out if you have time. It sounds challenging. It sounds like something I need to be in the right mood for. I knew almost nothing about it. I could already sense like, I better be prepared when I sit down for this thing because it might punch you in the gut a little bit. Yeah, I'd say overall, it's still a comedy. Like okay. you're going to laugh more than you're going to get mad, but you're definitely going to have a reaction to the main characters. I don't even want to call them shenanigans because they're worse than that, <laughs> but whatever he gets up to. But I definitely recommend it. And I don't think the film endorses his behavior if that's a concern for anybody. Right. I've been seeing a lot of discourse around that and licorice pizza because they deal with superficially similar themes, I would say, but okay. in wildly different ways and with wildly different viewpoints of different age gaps and relationships and what's a appropriate and what's not. So could make for a fun double feature. I have not got a chance to see licorice pizza yet though. So I can't really remark upon what it does with a similar material. Interesting. I've been making my way through the French Dispatch, which also has an extreme age gap relationship featured in one of its stories. So it seems like a hot topic. I think Josh Gondelman had a tweet. This has nothing to do with anything, but I just love Josh. <laughs> 
Dispatch Gondelman, one of my favorite comedians. And I think he called the French Dispatch a boss fight against Wes Anderson, which is just <laughs> such a very apt description of it because Wes Anderson, as he ages, I feel like he's leaning more into his weird idiosyncrasies and yeah. Wes Anderson-ness. So it makes for a fun view. Because like you can enjoy his movies, but they're also really easy to make fun of. Yeah. No, I'm several levels in and thankfully I saved my progress. So I don't have to go back because I haven't defeated the whole movie yet. Need an extra life. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. get back there. So with all that out of the way, we got to bring up today's movie. This is one the Blastoids are clamoring for. Death to Smoochie was highly requested. Wow. Exciting. We've gotten a lot of feedback on Twitter about it. People love this movie. I remember when this movie was on HBO, probably a year or two after its theatrical release, or maybe not even that much because it probably got put on HBO pretty shortly after it was released, considering how poorly it did. Me and my sister would watch it all the time. I remember being a big fan of it and maybe not loving it, but just having it on constantly. It became a weird comfort food movie for me. And then almost 20 years passed that I never thought about it again until we started this podcast. And I went back with new eyes and it, w- it was interesting. I'm going to obviously get into it more, but I want to know your relationship with this movie. Did you even know about it before this? Did you know about it, but hadn't seen it? What was your familiarity with the subject? I think I was almost a total blank slate with this. I had heard the title and I kind of had the inkling it was a weird movie and it had some stars in it. And so it was something that had pushed the boundaries, touched the third rail and got burned. And that's kind of what it turned out to be. I probably could have told you that Robin Williams was in it, but not even sure of that. So I went in pretty fresh and hoping for something fun and, and stimulating and exciting. And it, it has some fun in it. It does some stuff that appeals to me, but in the end, to spoil my take on it, didn't quite win me over. So we'll talk about the ways that it did and didn't succeed for me. Yeah, in a twist that's been happening more and more lately, though, you're a little more down on this movie than I am. Nostalgia might have a part to play in that, but I also uh-huh. think we have similar criticisms of the movie. We, we think it fails in the same parts and succeeds where it does in the same parts. I think I just give it a little more credit for the things it does well, while also really hating the things it does poorly. Because yeah, this does feel like two movies at times. There's scenes that got hearty laughs out of me and storylines I thought were really worthwhile. And then there's whole threads of this movie that I just wish would be deleted forever. Yeah. That drag the movie down every time they come up. So it it is a tough one to talk about because I have such wildly different feelings about different parts of it. He's talking about Robin Williams, folks, to spoil the surprise. That's the part of the movie that you want to see less of. I do feel like it's hard to talk critically about Robin Williams because he's so beloved and obviously his death affected a lot of people and it's still pretty fresh. I think it hasn't even been eight years yet. So it's tough to talk about him from a critical perspective, but I think you have to when you're reviewing his work, you have to judge it on its merits. And uh, I'm certainly a fan of his, but not necessarily his performance as Rainbow Randolph. Yeah, he's obviously was a fantastic, amazing talent, gave us a, a ton of incredible stuff. His stand-up comedy, his TV work, his movie work, full of great stuff. This isn't one of the great ones, but I don't blame him. I blame the filmmakers for not giving him a better role, not giving him a better script, and for like pushing him. You feel like there's someone just off camera had a cattle prod and zapped him with it just before the camera rolled and said, go in there and fucking make something happen in the scene. And he's okay. See, I don't feel the invisible hand pushing him to be more manic as much as you do. I just feel like he saw it as a chance to let loose. And that certainly worked for him in the past. I just think it clashed with the rest of the movie here. And it wasn't like the tones that it matched. I said to you over text that he feels like an entire character was ADR'd in. Like they added (laughs) him in post-production. Yeah. Because there's this whole other movie happening that really, once you get 
Rainbow Randolph out of the way, and I won't talk too much about the storyline, but he has a significant role in the very first section of this movie. But once he's gone from there, you don't really need him anymore. And it felt like the movie kept trying to find ways to shoehorn him back into the story. But every time it did, it dragged it down a little bit more. Yeah, to me, that feels such like a Hollywood thing. They had a movie that worked that was centered around Edward Norton and Catherine Keener. And they're like, but we got Rob Williams signed to do this movie and he's going to be our box office draw. So put him in more scenes. We need to be able to call this a Rob Williams movie. And it was just a mistake. This would have been really interesting with him in a genuine cameo role or like a small role, which you sometimes see bigger stars do. Like he just played a wacko and he came and he went and it blew my mind. But instead they're like, no, we got to milk him. And it just, it exhausts Think about, him. Yeah. Tom Cruise and Tropic Thunder. That's like a role yeah. where they didn't go back to the well too often. So it still worked. Exactly. There's plenty of examples of it like that, but that's just the first one that pops to mind. I think if you cut him out of the movie after his confrontation with John Stewart in the, in the abandoned parking lot, then like he does the heavy lifting of getting Ed Norton's character where he needs to be for the movie to happen. And you get a little exposition out of the way with that scene. And then you kind of don't need him anymore. You could maybe do a surprise callback at the end for a little zinger, spice up the ending, but it would have been a better movie without him just constantly in your face. So you want me to talk about the movie and how it got made and who all was involved such as it is? There's not a ton of behind the scenes info out there on this movie. I think the studio tried to bury it as much as they could. So (laughs) I scraped together what I could. Yeah, let's see if that'll explain anything about how this thing happened. All right. So while he initially rose to fame for his work in comedy, both as a foul-mouthed stand-up and lovable alien Mork in the hit sitcom Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams is always careful to balance his family-friendly roles with more serious and darker performances. In 1991, he starred in Steven Spielberg's hit family movie Hook, but also starred in The Fisher King. He had a smash hit in 1993 with Mrs. Doubtfire, but received acclaim for his turn as a grief-stricken family man in a 1994 episode of Homicide Life on the Street called Bop Gun. For whatever reason, the year 2002 saw him indulging his darker side with no lighthearted roles to be found. Or as he put it, no, 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 no lighthearted roles. He played deranged, violent men in two R-rated thrillers with insomnia and one-hour photo, but his most detestable character of the year is probably Rainbow Randolph, a foul-mouthed, greedy, hateful, disgraced children's star in Danny DeVito's rom-com slash noir slash thriller, Death to Smoochie. Written by longtime comedy scribe Adam Resnick and with a star-studded cast including Williams, Catherine Keener, and ascendant leading man Ed Norton, not to mention DeVito himself, and heavyweight supporting players like John Stewart, Harvey Firestein, and Michael Raspoli, Smoochie received a hefty investment from British production company Film 4, which assigned the R-rated comedy a $50 million budget. Wow, $50 million buys a lot of penis-shaped cookies. Filmed on location in New York City during the winter of 2001, the production would move to Toronto for set work in spring 2001, and principal photography would wrap up in May of the same year. Set for a wide theatrical release on March 29, 2002, the film received mostly negative reviews from critics, with some high-profile reviewers like Roger Ebert absolutely shredding the film. Oh boy, the purple fur was flying. When it hit theaters, it landed with an enormous thud, earning only $4.2 million its opening weekend, and going on to make just $8.3 million during its entire run, making it a huge box office bomb. The movie definitely has its defenders, though, and has earned a substantial cult following, which may even be larger if the film wasn't difficult to find on streaming for many years. Yeah, this movie landed like, like what's his name? Vin- oh, nah, my joke just fell apart. Oh, no. This movie landed like Vincent Schiavelli falling off a catwalk. Is that his name? What's his character's name? Button Bug Diggy or something? <laughs> Buggy Dun Dun? Bug- Dougie Bun Bun? Bug- ding uh, Dong? Buggy Ding Dong. Buggy Ding Dong? Yeah, I think you nailed it. Buggy <laughs> Ding Dong. Interesting looking man, Vincent Schiavelli. <laughs> yes. That's certainly unique. You don't forget that face. No, you don't. But yeah, $50 million budget would only make eight. 
didn't even crack the eight-figure mark. That's like that a don't rough. show your face. It's in Hollywood kind of a number where you're like, oh, shit. And it kind of went that way for DeVito because I think he was in production on Duplex by the time this movie got released. So he was still able to finish that one. And then Duplex was a huge bomb, too. That'll be a future episode for sure. And then that kind of spelled the end of his directing days. But fortunately, he had lots of other success. He's still quite beloved. Yeah. So DeVito, he's not hard up at all. He's one of the most beloved actors, I think, especially on the Internet. The Internet loves him. Probably a lot of it is his always sunny role and how gifable he is. Or jiffable if you're a piece of shit. Yeah, the meat of his blockbuster comedy career was long ago. And then he pulled a Travolta, reinvented himself on that show and just became the darling of a whole new generation. Yeah, and he had some success with directing before this movie. He had done War of the Roses and Matilda, which were both well-received critically and commercially. So it wasn't like he was unproven or this was his first movie. And I don't think the direction with the exceptions we've already mentioned is bad in this movie. It has some weird choices it does, some weird kind of homages to films of the past and film genres of the past that make it feel anachronistic with the actual present day timeline. Yeah, he directs with a heavy hand visually, right? There's Dutch angles, the camera's at a slant or the camera will be dead overhead for a scene and there'll be silhouettes, there'll be extreme close-ups of eyeballs. And like you said, a lot of those are homages to things that fit in that noir genre and crime thriller genre, which this movie has a thread of that, which it juxtaposes against the children's television milieu. Well, it's using children's television as almost a stand-in for organized crime. So it makes sense that you would have the parallels to noir I got some Coen Brothers vibes from his directing. Also some Jonathan Demme vibes because he does a lot of extreme close-up and he occasionally will have the actor talk directly into the camera, like facing straight, which I found uh, a little like unsettling sometimes, but also a Demi hallmark. So yeah, like, he's got a big bag of really good influences and I think the movie is visually pretty striking most of the time. Yeah, so you got to give him credit for that. It stands out. It shows a, a confidence and a vision to do something interesting with the directing. I love what Danny DeVito's doing with the camera in this movie. It's more the story choices where I wished he would have made better ones. Not directed like a typical comedy, which no. you don't read a lot about the camera angles or things like that when you're talking about comedies. But DeVito was determined to make this a real film yeah. and not just be like a landing pad for jokes. He was going to yeah. he was going to flex his muscles. I'm struggled to put into words, but it's got verve in the direction is something I would say. I think you just did put it into words, put it into good words. <laughs> well, what a struggle that was. We've made some allusions to the plot of the movie. Do you want to walk us through the first leg of it so we can get into it? All right, let's get into this thing. Rainbow Randolph, played by Robin Williams, is the host of America's most popular children's TV show. That is, until he's arrested for taking bribes from the parents of kids who want to be on his show and fired in disgrace. Kidnet TV Network executive Frank Stokes decides they'll replace Randolph with the obscure and idealistic entertainer Sheldon Mopes, a.k.a. Smoochie the Rhino, played by Edward Norton. Sheldon gets the job because he has no known vice or scandal. In fact, he's the only squeaky clean performer in the children's entertainment business. Show producer Nora Wells, played by Catherine Keener, is dubious about Sheldon, but Stokes sends her out to recruit him. The new Smoochie show is a smash hit. But Sheldon becomes frustrated as the show becomes highly commercialized and Nora takes creative control. Meanwhile, Randolph wants his old show back, so he tries to get Smoochie fired by sneaking penis-shaped cookies into a segment of the show. But his scheme fails. A lot happening in that first section. And this is the quiet part of the plot. Right. <laughs> I feel like it picks up in the second half. The movie really wastes no time in getting Randolph out of there and getting Smoochie in. It's almost immediate. We see one little clip of the Rainbow Randolph show in action, which has a sinister vibe to it. 
befitting of the Rainbow Randolph character. I actually thought that wasn't the best choice because you meet him and he's singing his theme song, Friends Come in All Sizes, which I wasn't sure if I was supposed to take something from that lyric, but there are plenty of other lyrics that Ron Williams sings that are clearly sexual double entendres. You say grasp, I say snatch. There's all kinds of stuff that are icky little sexual innuendos. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. so this guy sucks. And so there's none of the like, oh, this is a truly beloved children's performer with a dark side. It's like, this is a dark children's performer with a darker side, because in the next scene, he's just a total creepoid taking bribes from desperate parents. Yeah, his terribleness is very much on the surface in these early scenes. And also the show opens with this weird, like the way South Park would do celebrities, where they just paper mache, cut the face in half and have the heads like bob up and down to talk. And it just gave me like immediate ransom note serial killer vibes, like somebody making a weird collage. Uh, So it already set me into a weird defensive posture (laughs) towards this segment. I think that's a thing, and we'll probably come back to it. That's the thing about the tone of the whole movie. It's very cynical. Everything is kind of ugly. Everything is tainted. Everyone is tainted, is out for money, is out for power. And it doesn't have a warm heart to contrast that. And we'll talk about it when we talk about Sheldon, because he's the closest thing. But I think they never get there with him. So like everything's edgy. And it feels to me like the heavy hand of the screenwriter, who is one of those ultra cynical TV writers, which I mean, I'm projecting onto the writer. I forgot his name right now. Adam Resnick. Adam Resnick. But he's a longtime Letterman writer. Worked with Chris Elliott a lot. Yeah, um, big collaborator with Chris Elliott, who himself is dark and cynical. But this feels like something written by a jaded old snarky late night writer. And it was. It was. But I'm going to offer a little pushback and okay. say that I don't think Sheldon for his faults, and he's certainly not a perfect character by any means. We'll see him deal with temptation and go a little power mad as the film goes on. But I think his intentions, even when he goes on that journey, are still good. And to me, that does give the movie kind of a warm center. The question is, is that enough to warm up the entire movie? Because everything around it is so cynical and angry. And that's a question that can't really answer because it's going to be up to every individual viewer. I think it did. You don't necessarily agree. That's okay. Yeah, I totally see that. The meat of his performance as Sheldon is authentic. He's this character who is just really genuinely idealistic and positive at all times. But somehow I had trust issues with trusting that was real from the start. Now, there's a bunch of reasons for that. One of them was just a subtle thing. When we first meet him, he's singing in a methadone clinic. And he does all these things in that scene that show that he's genuinely interested in the welfare of the patients and he's trying to entertain them. But the screenwriter couldn't help writing these digs and like just belittling the smack addicts and calling them hopheads and saying the next this thing movie is be not kind heads. to people with substance abuse problems throughout. No. Yeah, that's very true. Just doing that little thing with Sheldon undercut his goodness because I'm like, oh, he's actually mocking them. Maybe for some weird reason, I could almost see the invisible hand of the writer there and I didn't attribute it to the character as okay. much. It is certainly understandable to have a suspicion of Sheldon for one thing because the movie is what it is and is saying what it's saying. Also, it's just... You can't ignore the baggage that comes with Ed Norton. Yes. Yeah, with famously surly asshole, but usually in the service of his projects. He wants creative control because he wants all his movies to be the best ever. And he thinks he knows better than everyone, but it's given him a bit of a reputation in Hollywood. And That's true. you also look at his past roles. So Fight Club's 99 and Primal Fear is 96. In both, he plays guileless rubes, kind of patsies who end up having a dark, sinister secret. 
exactly. for the whole time. Yes, so you, you suspect him immediately. You don't even need to know his Hollywood reputation. You just need to have seen his other movies to date. And you're like, oh, Primal Fear, this is a helpless little kid. Oh, no, no, he's a horrible murderer. Okay, fool me once. And then you go, oh, Fight Club. <laughs> and then and I think American History X might be in the middle of that, where he's just a straight up piece of shit. But then oh, that might have been why he was so jacked for this movie. <laughs> then oh, American like, History X was 98, yeah. Yeah, and then Fight Club, again, he seems to be the innocent one. And at the end of the movie, that all comes crashing down. Literally. It's very fair to go into this movie and go, Edward Norton, he plays guys who seem nice and they turn super evil in the third act. So I was kind of waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah, it's totally understandable to be suspicious of Sheldon. And then when that turn doesn't come, it almost feels anticlimactic. But uh, I, for one, was happy because I wanted the movie to have some semblance of humanity, which I think it, it does attain through him. Let's talk about... Some of the supporting cast. What the fuck is Jon Stewart's hair in this movie? Where did What is his haircut? He has an unfortunate look. Between his haircut and his baggy suits, he looks like a little kid that wished he could play a grown-up in a movie. <laughs> like, that was his last wish, and they were like, fine. Also, I didn't realize, he's not a great actor. No, he's he's got his funny moves, and he tries them all here, and somehow they just, it all falls flat. Feels canned, maybe, or he never had a huge acting career before he kind of got into his pundancy. But I remember liking him in Big Daddy. Maybe that was just a little bit more of a naturalistic performance. And yeah. Half-Baked, obviously, just plays a, a stoned conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Is- They're not even asking that much from him here. He plays this very stereotypical- <laughs> Slimy um, executive. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know. He just, he struck me as one note and a little, like, when he should have been at eight, he was at 10. And when he should have been at 10, he was at seven. Like, he just never quite had the right vibe in any of the scenes. He was miscalculated. Contrast that with Catherine Keener, who was just on fire in this movie. I find her extremely charming in this role. Her just exasperatedness at everything everyone else says. She just couldn't be bothered. And I love it. Yeah. So a lot of these scenes are hard to play as written. And Catherine Keener somehow pulls out, like she plays them. She has to listen to the people delivering these punchlines at her. And somehow she finds this thing at the end, like she gets in the last lick in a lot of these exchanges. And it's something surprising. Like it's elevated. It almost feels like what she's doing was not in the script. Cause like this kind of corny wrote scene plays out. And then she says something or reacts in some way at the end of it that you're like, oh shit, what? That was funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it is the script, like the way she's playing it is so unique. I don't think any other actress would have had that same interpretation of any of these scenes, but they work. Yeah. Cause the, and the movie's reality is a little bit amplified too. So her kind of off kilter reactions to things fit. Yeah. And don't feel like out of place, but she has one bad scene, which is when she's supposed to be drunk and that hasn't come up yet. And I thought her drunk acting was really something special and not in a good way, but you know, everything else, uh, she's just nailing it. It's fun to watch. She's super underrated actress. She's so strong in this. When you see her in this, you're like, why wasn't she in every rom-com in this era? Because she's so good. Yeah. And then she was in the 40 year old virgin three years later. And that was probably her next big break. She was in Sicario, Day of the Soldado, playing like an icy bureaucrat war criminal. I see. Um, so the big set piece, I guess, of this first leg of the movie is the penis cookies, which I know comedically wasn't really a home run for me or you, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I, didn't, I thought Sheldon's response, calling it a rocket ship, was nice. I think he panics a little too long. They draw it out a little bit. But yeah, from the story point of view, it's a good save. It's a moment where, oh, did Randolph just ruin 
Moochie? No. He pulls out of the dive in a heroic way. Everyone's cheering. But the joke isn't fun. So the bit is that there's a segment on the show where a bag of cookies comes down from the sky and Smoochie hands them out to the kids and Randolph has baked these penis cookies and slipped them into the bag without anyone knowing. And you must have an industrial kitchen, by the way to bake this <laughs> sack of cookies and decorate them all. But I guess he does know, a lot of free time. Only one ever comes out. But you know what I think? Yeah. Now that you say that, on my rewatch, I think he's cooking them over a barrel, right? Because he's like semi-homeless at this point. And he's like- Right, he got kicked out of the corp. Because apparently when you're a TV star, the company just gives you the penthouse in this reality. Yeah, you're not baking cookies over a barrel. Baking is a science. You need exact temperatures. You need These measurements. F- He's not measuring out his flour and his sugar and his butter and over the barrel. I have a weird complaint about the penis cookies. They didn't look penis-like enough to me. They did look like they were <laughs> grilled over a fucking oil drum, which I guess made it realistic for the particulars of the plot, but it could have been a rocket ship. It was just a big lumpy turd. Right. It it? looked enough like a rocket ship to be plausible deniability on Shelton's part. And none of the kids even questioned it once he said it was a rocket ship. Nobody was like, it looks like a dick. (laughs) So then you have Randolph chomping down from the ceiling and exclaiming over and over again that it's actually a penis and everyone just treats him like he's crazy for saying so. Yeah, which wasn't fun either. Like that was supposed to be a comedic payoff of him screaming at the kids all these different words for penis. It's a this, it's a that. And then it wasn't. Yeah. I know that's like a fan favorite scene. It didn't really land for me. But you know what made it a favorite for me? The first half of that scene, we talked about Danny DeVito. He went to town on this visually. It's a spectacle because the first part is the setup of Randolph gets the magic wand thrown to him and the camera is swooping and diving and there's the bag uh, descending from the stars and it's visually awesome. And then it has this really cool thing where Randolph is looking on, waiting for his ploy to come to pass and he's tucked under a stage somewhere. Somehow he's looking through a little handheld mirror and he's bathed in blue light and it's just, it's visually really cool. And then the joke payoff is not that fun. I think I described it as Lynchian, like the way that scene was shot. Yes. The blue light and, and like the voyeuristic element. Totally. But yeah, the, so the filmmaking payoff and the visual payoff, good. The comedic payoff, not so much. Yeah. Was there anything else from this section uh, we had to hit before we move on to the middle of the movie? No, why don't we see what happens next? All right. So Sheldon gets a new agent, Burke Bennett, played by DeVito himself, who helps him take back creative control from the network. But Bennett is in league with corrupt charity boss Merv Green, and the two of them want Smoochie to star in an ice show so they can skim the profits. Sheldon is befriended by brain-damaged ex-boxer Spinner Dunn, whose Irish mob boss cousin strong-arms him into giving Spinner a role on the show. Sheldon and Nora bond over a love for children's performers, and their contentious relationship begins to soften into a possible romance. Meanwhile, Randolph is still obsessed with taking down Smoochie, and he successfully tricks Sheldon into performing at a neo-Nazi rally. The rally gets raided, and with the arrest and subsequent publicity, Sheldon loses his job, his reputation, and Nora too. A lot, lot to dive into in this section. First off, let's talk about Spinner. Yeah. Uh, played by Michael Rispoli. Jackie April himself from The Sopranos plays a very dignified, powerful, intelligent mob boss on The Sopranos. Kind of Tony's mentor. Well, that adds some fun context. <laughs> I've never, I'm still waiting to hear if The Sopranos is any good before I check it out. But What so are you waiting on, Ian? Come on. <laughs> no. You gotta get on that. I know it's good. But I was busy with MacGruber and things. I just finished a rewatch of The Sopranos, actually. I watched the whole series again. It took me like a year because it peppered in other stuff between. But Yeah, well, you make uh, the time. Still, still holds up. So just please watch The Sopranos. Again. Okay. So I couldn't, I could not appreciate that aspect of Spinner. But Spinner, a lot of whether you liked this movie and thought it was funny or 
cringy might depend on how you receive Spinner. I think Spinner is not a bad character. There are moments where I enjoyed him. He's best in small doses, though. Kind of the the punch-drunk Xboxer is, in real life, a very sad story. But again, I think the movie's reality is amplified enough where you don't necessarily feel like they're picking on people with pugilistic dementia, as it used to be called, what oh. we now know is just CTE. I think maybe I'm um, too sensitive because of the current climate and what we've learned about what that does to athletes. So yeah, if you think about the real world implications, it's pretty fucking sad. But in the movie, it's very cartoony, but he's so fucked up. Like he's so bad off. It's also not what like repeated head trauma does to you. The way he's acting is not indicative of documented repeated head trauma. You know, it's like violent mood swings and memory loss and things like that. But he's just reverted back to childhood almost. Right. He's a child, which I get where it works in the story because Sheldon is the one person in this story who is willing to extend some sympathy to this child man. And that wins him an ally in the Irish mob, which is what saves his neck more than once later on. So it makes the plot work in an interesting way, but I had a hard time. I was a little bit sad on the spinner scenes. So that kind of took some of the joy out of it. You know what? I I see what you're saying and I agree, but there was one probably spinner saddest scene, not to spoil anything. He has one line that made me laugh really hard (laughs) and I will bring it up when the time is right. But also I thought they they did a nice subversion with his cousins where you think they're going to be the heavies of the movie and they're going to strong arm Sheldon and make him do their bidding. But really, once once Sheldon acquiesces and gets a little job on the show, they're just like his friends now. They don't really need anything else from him. So that was like a warm moment. The relationship he builds with the Irish mob. I like that from a <laughs> screenwriting standpoint, too, that it was a creative problem solving thing. How do you give this perfectly idealistic and wholesome character some muscle so he can fight back? Because he's got to fight back against a lot of enemies, right? He's got this triple threat coming after him. The movie is called Death to Smoochie, so there's people out to get him. <laughs> Everybody's out to get him. It's a quadruple threat, actually. His agent, the executive, the charity boss, and Randolph. Randolph, yeah. Yeah, so he needs a lot of help. And then another thing I enjoyed about this movie is how they handle the charities basically being treated like the mafia. And you have Merv Green and the Parade of Hope, which is just such an over-the-top, corny charity name, yes. the Parade of Hope. We both had this line in our notes that we enjoyed from DeVito when he's talking about them. He calls them, he says, these guys are the roughest of all the charities. And he yeah. says it with real gravitas. Yeah. yeah, he's like, don't fuck with them. So yeah, it sets up this wacky world that this movie lives in where the children's entertainers are sinister and motivated by greed. And then the charities are even worse. They're the worst. And you can't do better than Harvey Firestein with his gravel voice for an intimidating mob boss. Very different role from the last time he worked with Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire as the the salon owner. Yeah, he's the big bad guy pretty much in this movie because you don't even get to see his face. He is shrouded in mystery. The first couple times you see him, he's in shadow. He's a silhouette. DeVito's going into the full-on noir lighting thing. When they strong-arm Sheldon into the limo, that's the first time we really see him, right? Yeah, before then, he's a shadowy figure. Good acting by him, though. I I enjoyed him in that role. It's the right mix of a guy you can buy as a heavy, but also with comedic chops enough to let you know that the stakes aren't really that high. I thought he and Catherine Keener both found the right pitch to play their parts at. So my main thesis about this movie started to crystallize during this section, which is that it is really kind of a generic tropey rom-com between Nora and Sheldon. She is a high-powered executive who's cynical and takes no nonsense, and she's forced to work with this kind of dopey idealist who gradually wins her over, Uh and then there's a setback, which we'll get into in a minute, where they're pushed apart, and then the misunderstanding is cleared up, and they're brought back together. 
together, right? Like at, at its heart, isn't this just like every other rom-com? That's the main story of the movie was trying to get them put together or should it be? Yeah, that was an excellent summary of the rom-com plot of this movie. And it makes it sound really appealing. It would have been a better movie if that was, that's in there, but it's so crowded with other stuff that you can't appreciate that part of it so much. And it's not to say you can't have the other elements because we like a lot of the other elements, but push them to the background more and push the rom-com thing to the foreground a little more. Maybe it's hard to get $50 million for an R-rated rom-com, I would assume, but I think it would have been an interesting movie if they leaned into that a little more. The thing that sunk the romance for me was the sort of unreality of Sheldon's character. He felt very childlike. You're trying to figure out if he's for real. Actually, Nora says, I didn't know if you were for real when they start to hook up. And all of a sudden he's having grown up love relationship feelings with Nora and these sexual tension sparks are starting to fly and it felt weird. And I actually felt icky. There's one scene where he's changing out of his costume and she sees him take his shirt off and she gets turned on. He's a swole king. Let's be honest. (laughs) We've all seen Fight Club, American History X. My man, he he puts in time in the weight room. He looks good, but I'm like, no, that's wrong. Nora, don't look at the that's a child. That's not a man, but of course it is a man, but something felt off there. And I'm like, oh, that's derailing the romance for me. To your point, when they eventually sleep together, I was almost shocked that Sheldon would go for premarital sex. The movie presents him as such a non-sexual character. I assumed right. he was a virgin, but seems to know what he's doing. I think part of it is the, the movie's a little inconsistent with how childlike and silly he is. There's one scene where he's chasing a Frisbee out into the hallway and then gets locked out of his own meeting. But then there's other scenes where he maintains that idealistic stance while still seeming like an intelligent and principled person. Yeah. So it's a little inconsistent with how his character, like basically what his intelligence level is and what his maturity level is. Sometimes he seems like a little kid that just wants to put on a show. And other times he seems like he really does want to help these kids, but he's fucking serious about it. Yeah. Like sometimes he's worldly. He has a vision for what children's entertainment should be. And he's not like this insulated little kid who just wants to play. I think it would have been better if they would have let that ride and not gone so hard into the childish moments, which are mostly just played to get laughs. You could have kept him as a more real dimensional feeling character. And then that would have made the rom-com work better. would have made a lot of the movie work better for me. That's the trouble when you have a movie that's trying to do so many clashing tones Mm -hmm. and do them all well. You have to have scenes that are purely comedic, but then that might undercut decisions the character has to make later on. So it is a tough balancing act. I think it mostly pulls it off, but yeah, there are some times where you can feel it pushing and pulling against itself. Yeah. And if you want to talk about the unrealistic, hyper-real world, here comes Randolph back into the scene with another scheme. And this one works for him. He sets up poor Sheldon, who's again, kind of naive. He calls him with this accent. I'm so-and-so McNuckle pick. And he's using this accent that shifts back and forth between Scottish and Irish and Australian. And he suckers him into showing up at this benefit show where he's going to give him a plaque and it turns out it's neo-Nazis. But I'm about to complain that the neo-Nazi rally is not realistic, but like (laughs) it's a weird plot device. Have you been to America in 2022? No, but I totally get your point. I have a lot of issues with the logistics of this scene. Right. It's Um, the logistics that are iffy. They rented out this enormous hall with just swastikas flying everywhere. I don't know if that's realistic, but why are they so fucking excited to see Smoochie the Rhino? Well, they're both excited and cold. They start out by clapping excitedly for him. And then they go cold when he starts to do the sing-along. So he's like, what's going on? I don't hear anybody singing along. Can you turn up the house lights? And then they seize them. Then don't they chant Hail Smoochie? 
at the end when they stood up and saluted i'm fairly certain they chant hail speed yeah no you're probably right which why yeah leaning it into real nazi stuff i don't know if you're gonna unveil an actual nazi banner that's 50 feet tall your scene's got to be really good otherwise it you just gotta starts, earn it yeah it starts to just become offensive like haha nazis are funny and nazis aren't that funny and also like this whole thing gets resolved like super fast. Sheldon is disgraced. He loses everything. Randolph is moving back in, even though I don't know why he thought making Sheldon look bad would make him look good in comparison. Like he still did terrible things. That's not going to make people forget. That was never really realistic. You could chalk it up to his manic mental state at the time. But then the lie is revealed. It felt like five minutes later when I was watching it, I watched it twice. It doesn't feel like there's a whole long section where Sheldon is really down in the dumps. No, they don't make him wallow in that. He hits this low point and I checked the timing when this happens because when the character loses his show, everyone in the world hates him and his budding romance gets burned into a crisp. You go, okay, this is it. This is the character's low point. And I looked and it's almost exactly the halfway point of the movie. I'm like, that should be closer to the climax. That should be later in the movie. And so the fact that happens there and the fact that they bail out of it really quick goes to show how much plot that they had left. They're like, we've got to get all this in the second half of the movie. And it just reflects how overstuffed the plot is in the second half. Think about it this way. If you cut this entire section from the movie where Sheldon goes to the rally, gets fired, gets disgraced, you find out Randolph set it all up. Sheldon gets his job back. Cut it all. What's different? Right. Nothing. No, that's a great point. It's a diversion because then it picks up with the main story. The ice show becomes like the main driving plot. So the whole rally and Sheldon losing his job thing never really has ramifications for the rest of the movie. No. We get a nice three minute tap dancing scene from Robin Williams we didn't fucking need. Another gratuitous scene. He's jumping on park benches and dancing. Yelling at babies, calling them, I think, nipple biter is what he calls this baby. Yeah. That's cool. He's a good tap dancer. I couldn't do that. Man's got tap dancing skills. Yeah. His talents, they were trying to use them all. It's just they were milking him so hard. I wonder yeah. if we'll get comments, people who just love this stuff, and they're like, no, there wasn't enough Robin Williams. Make him do more crazy sequences. I'm sure, but I think that speaks to what we felt is that it almost feels like two movies, and there's going to be people that prefer one or the other. Yeah. And I think what happened was they tried to sell that this was a Robin Williams movie to people. And even with all these extra scenes that we say we'd cut, it's still not his movie. It's still Sheldon's right. movie. It's very much Ed Norton and Sheldon's movie. So it, it just disappoints in all these ways. Well, do you want to walk us through the end? See how this thing wraps up? Yeah. Let's talk about how he instantly digs out of his deepest, darkest moment. So the Irish mobsters beat a confession out of Randolph for staging the Nazi event. And Sheldon is magically redeemed, both with the TV watching public and with Nora. Then Sheldon agrees to do the ice show, but... He's going to give away all the profits, which is the last straw for his agent Bennett and the charity boss Green, who decide they need to have him killed. A ruined Randolph tries to immolate himself in public, but the stunt only ends in more humiliation. Spinner takes on a new role on the show as Smoochie's rhino cousin, Moochie. And as Sheldon and Nora finally hook up, hitmen looking for Smoochie murder the costumed Spinner instead. Randolph confronts Sheldon and Nora, but they all talk out their issues and make peace. Then the Irish mob takes revenge for Spinner by killing Merv Green. But with the ice show approaching, Bennett and Stokes hire another hitman to murder Sheldon. But Randolph shows up, defeats the assassin, and saves Sheldon. And in the happy end credits, Sheldon, Randolph, and Nora all perform an ice show together. Hey. Holy shit. I thought I was going <laughs> to pass out trying to read all those plot points I know. in quick succession. That's a lot. So get it out of the way now. Moochie is obviously murdered in cold blood in the scene spinner. While he's being savagely beaten and eventually murdered, he just goes, uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
<laughs> I don't know why. It was so good. I didn't even hear it, it me until, you, a lot. <laughs> until you pointed it out and I and my rewatch. I'm like, oh shit. That was the one point where I'm like, that's what I wanted from Spinner. I'm okay with his dopey right. act right there because that was just too funny. It's such a funny reading of the line too. I give Mike Rispoli a lot of credit for reading it that way. I'm sure it was ADR'd in after the fact because you just see him in silhouette. Not yeah. like he was probably mic'd up for that scene, but I don't know. It just tickled me yeah <laughs> so if you haven't seen the movie see if you can find that scene on youtube it's worth it so we just went through in the last section sheldon's comeback but then he does have a little scene here when he's finally back on set making the show again where he alludes to his past troubles what did you make of this scene i don't know you can see them trying to give sheldon an arc trying to say oh is he being corrupted is his unflagging idealism and positivity going to eventually be buried by this dark cruel world that keeps attacking him and this is one of those moments where they do a little fake out he sets up this thing he's going to do on the show and you're like oh shit he's lost it he's finally going dark but he reverses it on them he lets all his anger out in a howl and then he's immediately happy again so his like, howl is pretty funny though it goes on a little too long it's a little too emphatic you see the <laughs> audience and the kids get a little nervous when he does it. I thought that was just like a nice touch to me, but no one's really sure how tightly wound this guy is. If he's going to snap at any moment. It's not a bad scene. I saw what they're trying to do. I guess just in the context of the whole movie, I didn't feel like that arc really went anywhere. You kind of, he doesn't really. I think it culminates in his scene where he's thinking about taking revenge for Moochie. Yeah. And but that's, back at the last minute. But that's even faster than the howl, right? The howl at least takes time for that scene to develop. He does this long, slow buildup and it's setting up like, oh, he might just go nuts on us here. But like that scene in the end, which is really his last moment where everything's been pushed to the edge. They try to kill him again. He watched the assassin die in front of him on the ice. He chases down. Does he chase down both Bennett and Stokes? I forgot who he's yeah, in the end. I think so. He's holding a gun to somebody's head by the end of this, right? And you're like, okay, this is the moment. Yeah, he's holding the gun to Danny DeVito. Right. He, the mob tells him they'll take care of it. Yeah, then the mob comes running in like, hey, Sheldon, don't do that. And he's like, oh, you're right. What was I thinking? He literally goes, what was I thinking? One second after you thought he was going to go dark. I'm like, okay, that was his Joker origin story. He just pulled the rug right back out. You used the words Joker origin story. And I was about to like <laughs> pull on that thread a little bit, because I think if you really wanted to have the Rainbow Randolph character in this movie, and you really wanted to make him into a villain in an interesting way, having him torment Sheldon, not to try to get his job back, but to try to get Sheldon to lose his cool would almost oh. be a more interesting angle to like what the Joker does to Batman throughout their shared history. Yes. He doesn't want to win. He just wants Batman to break his own rule. That might be, that's a dark movie if they go that route, but. That would have been cool though. Could be cool, right? If only Chris Nolan was around. This. I could see Fincher having fun with that. Some of the shots in this are Finchery. Yeah. I yeah. It's, it. it's definitely got the dark crime drama thing, but yeah, that would be cool. Or let him go bad. Cause essentially, you know what? He does go bad and they don't admit it because he in the end knows what happened. He knows that the Irish mob killed Merv Green on his behalf. He knows that they're about to kill his agent and the executive at his TV network. And he kind of just pretends to himself that he doesn't know that. He says, I can't think about that stuff too much. But he's essentially, he's been corrupted. Like he's not innocent. Yeah. People are dying on his behalf and he's letting the mobsters do the work. So like, why not make that 
like you said, make him actually do something bad and then have to fucking live with it and still go out and be positive to the kids. That would have made his character arc much more interesting. Yeah, it's a dark fucking movie. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what's weird is like what people talk about this movie, you read reviews and commentary on it and everyone's like, it's a dark, dark comedy. It's a really dark. And I'm like, it's not that dark. It has murders and shit going on, but it doesn't really dare to go to those extra places in, yeah, yeah, in ways that feel real at all. It's all cartoon darkness. That's fair. I mean, I know you had a note about the song, My Stepdad's Not Mean, He's Just Adjusting. What, what was it about that song that grabbed your attention? <laughs> it's a good comedy song. Again, I feel like of two ways about this one thing. Sheldon sings the other songs that are very earnest. Unlike Randolph, Sheldon's opening theme song, it's not tongue-in-cheek, it's not winking at you, it's not doing innuendos that subvert its wholesomeness. But then he does this song that's a true comedy song where all the lyrics are punchlines about my stepdad's not mean. He's just adjusting about teaching kids how to be forgiving of their stepdad when he's a jerk. And it's like, okay, this is three quarters of the way through the movie. And it now does feel out of place at, the, at this point. It's on, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I agree that the song is funny. I don't think it feels out of character for Sheldon because even though it's jokey because we have context, but the actual lyrics are are played pretty straight. Yeah, Um, no, I agree with that. It's what he would say. He is that kind of guy who would try to find a way for kids to manage this weird shit in their lives. I just think it's a weird pacing choice. Like, why are we doing this now when everything's ramping up and we're supposed to be getting ready for the big push to the end? Just it feels like something that should have happened in the first third. Yes, exactly. That's kind of fun. (laughs) I bet that's a lot of people's favorite thing in the movie. I I have no problem with the song. Maybe just the placement of it and some of the content. Sometimes stepdads (laughs) are just dicks. You can't make blanket statements like that, Sheldon. And then Randolph finally just decides to go try to shoot Sheldon. He's given up on all his hopes of subterfuge and just tries to murder him in cold blood. Goes where? Oh, they're at the corporate penthouse, right? They're at the corporate penthouse, which has an ominous Darth Vader skylight window. Does notice that window right away? It's very fancy. Like turn the lights out and let's have a lightsaber battle. Uh, it's right. Like an Empire Strikes Back in there. But yeah, I guess I'm starting to get tired of talking about all the tacked on Randolph drama because this is where yeah. it comes to biggest head. But it's also played weird because he comes in there with a fucking gun to their faces and they have a emotional conversation instead of running the fuck out of the room. Nora threatens to punch him at some point. I was like, he's got a gun on you. Nobody's treating the situation with the gravity it deserves, but the movie's not either. So yeah, and then. He gets on top of Sheldon, but I know Nora hits him with a paperback book and <laughs> it like, causes him to go flying off him. Yeah. So what is Catherine Keener? It might be strong. It's like a Sears catalog or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those thick, glossy magazines. It's not knocking out Robin Williams, no matter how hard Catherine Keener swings it at him. No, just, everything is stretching credulity in this scene. And then they yeah. just all come together. Randolph breaks down. And I just start singing I, one of his songs. Yeah. He has a little moment. Oh yeah. That was pretty cringy. I did not like that song. And then he's like, I just need a friend. And then Sheldon's, I'll be your friend. And that's the turn. They're friends now. It's but the- Randolph has done too much at this point in the movie for the viewers to be on his side all of a sudden, just because Sheldon thinks it's okay. Like, He's been terrible, not just to Sheldon, to everyone. He's yeah. a bad person. Sheldon is really becoming Christ-like in his capacity to forgive. That is some real reaching. We'd just be like, okay, you can stay in my apartment. You're my friend now. But I didn't want Randolph to have redemption. He doesn't no. deserve it. So it, it put me in an adversarial place with Sheldon. Right. The audience can't relate to his reaction at this it's, point. Yeah, it's hard for us to swallow. Yeah, like we have no surrogate. The audience has no one to relate to in this scene because these characters are making decisions we don't really agree with. And I don't know if the movie realizes that or not, but they made Randolph so repellent that I don't buy his redemption and I don't think he should be redeemed this easily. I think you're right. And when I think about who's the character that 
we should find most relatable because Sheldon the hero is a little bit out there, right? And that's okay to have that character. And so then it would fall to Catherine Keener's Nora character to be relatable, but they don't make her the rounded center either. I felt like the movie was missing a center and a heart that you could hold on to. I think it is Sheldon for the most part, but like I said, there's some inconsistency with his character and there's some scenes where it just doesn't, it doesn't land. Yeah. It's probably one of them. You can't quite go there with them. So then we get the big plot of the end of the movie is they're going to assassinate Sheldon at the ice show and they've recruited a character we've only heard about up until this point when they were originally going through the list of who they could have replace Randolph. Buggy Ding Dong was yeah. one of the ones that came up. <laughs> and he Was he a heroin mule? Is that his problem? They were listing off the potential replacements and then John Stewart had an answer for all of them that was yeah, some kind of is like that what he called him? horrible. I think he was a heroin mule. But they recruit him for this and they tell him they're going to get him back on TV if he just takes out Sheldon. I guess it's consistent with the dark world they painted of who the children's performers are. They're all these monsters. And this guy is not just a heroin addict and an ex-children's performer, but like an international super assassin. He has this wicked sniper rifle with a laser sight. It becomes a spy movie type assassination scene, like Manchurian right. Candidate. It reminded me, yeah, like Manchurian Candidate or Snake Eyes, which I recently watched, the okay. Apollo movie. And then he gets he gets some fun stuff. He tries to order a pretzel and they tell him they don't have any salt because no salt at, at the Sheldon Ice show. And he That's just right. kind of growls at this concession worker. Not a great performance though. Like he's fine. He nods off constantly, which gets really old really fast. That's one joke. You, you can hit once, but don't keep going back. Although... Now that you say that, I agree that was grading for this Buggy Ding Dong character because it's a callback to just mocking people with substance abuse issues. But then again, my boy Dukes, that was his bit in Semi-Pro and we thought it was funny. So I don't know. I think it's a little different because it was heavily implied Dukes was just smoking weed all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it matters what the drug is that is making you sleepy. Weed makes me sleepy too, but it doesn't mean (laughs) there's a difference. I'm not addicted to weed, okay? Right, yes. I'm sick of your accusations, Ian. (laughs) Buggy Ding Dong was more of a victim and so it was harsher to mock him for that. Right. He's also being manipulated by these powerful people. Right. They're clearly using his disease as a tool to make him do horrible things. He doesn't seem torn up about it, to be fair. He seems pretty on board. Yeah, exactly. But you uh, you weren't impressed with the way he went out. He gets knocked off the ledge by Randolph. And then he says in a deadpan-y voice, I never saw Venice. In my note, I have, this is a bad line delivered badly, which I stand by. I, I did not like that line. I thought it was out of place. It was clunky. I, that's where I heard the cynical late night TV writer again. That is like a old timey comedy writer's joke. Maybe it's giving too much credit, but like a joke that a Simpsons writer would write. It reeked of Mel Brooks, but like the bad Mel Brooks to me, like a lower quality Mel Brooks line is, is how I thought of it. But that's pretty much in line with what you're saying. Yeah. Because he's very old school comedy writing as well, obviously. Yeah. It calls attention to its comedy style rather than being in the flow of the movie. Which I don't think the rest of the movie really does. Most of the jokes spring up organically, except for the Randolph ones mostly, <laughs> which is why I think this line stood out to me so bad. In a Mel Brooks movie or a Simpsons episode, it probably wouldn't have felt exactly. um, it was bad or be, out of place. There are more of those flying in from all directions. Right. But yeah, not my favorite part. And then there's, it's kind of the end, Should right? we talk about the, the end credits and what to make of them? Refresh my memory here. What are we talking about with them? So as the credits roll, it snaps into this scene of more dancing Randolph. It's Oh, right. They're on stage together. They're on stage. They're actually on ice, but it's this kind of surreal set with these big lights and it says rainbow and it says smoochie. And apparently it's Elvis Stoiko, the Canadian Olympic figure skater who is standing in for Robin Williams and doing some spins and some moves. And you're doing some research. It's just a happy ending musical number. But then the characters start 
flying. Smoochie comes in and Nora comes in on ice skates too. And she's flying around and they're all flying. And it's, it's like a psychedelic dream sequence. I'm just like, wait, yeah. is this supposed to be the real close of the story? Because I saw some people online interpreted that as, oh, in the end, they all get a new TV show together. And then I looked at it. I'm like, this is not a real TV show. This is a fucking dream sequence. But whose dream is it? And what does it mean? I'm going to say that you might be overthinking it. It was just a fun I, way to entertain us. It, yeah. To me, it felt like a dream sequence, too. But I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that Sheldon gives Randolph a co-headlining spot on his show. Or they restage the ice show or to sort right. of make up what so they did. It's not a one-to-one example of what their new show is, but it's getting the point across that so they're going to uh-huh. work together now, maybe. It's also just a lot of production for the fucking credits. Like, I wasn't in a theater when I watched this movie, but I walked away from the screen before Catherine Keener comes in because it's a long time and it's just credits rolling. I'm like, okay, I get it. I see Rob Williams is doing ice dancing and uh, oh, I see Smoochie's there. And then I was like done. And then later on my second watch only, I'm like, oh yeah, Catherine Keener shows up too. Three minutes into the credits. Like, Full wow, disclosure. The reason I asked you to explain exactly what you meant is I, know, I haven't seen this. I watched the credits long enough to see Randolph smooching together <laughs> and then i was like all right i get it yes <laughs> like, if you knew Catherine keener was going to come out in a little you're ice talking about people dress. flying i'm like what the fuck are you talking about you? <laughs> they start just lifting off the eyes and they're on wires but it's done right hidden enough that it doesn't look like a staged show it looks like a dream sequence where they suddenly have the ability to fly but you absolutely made my point they spent another million dollars writing and producing that scene producing all, all the ice dancing and all the flying and it was for something that most people would probably drop their popcorn cups and we're out of the theater can i ask you a question you bring up that they spent a lot of money on the sequence do you see the budget do you see 50 million dollars on screen yeah it's a hard million. thing to, it's a hard thing to gauge because you assume robin williams and norton both got decent paydays for this right they were both big stars at the time that was my feeling like that that's probably where a lot of it went it's a lot of sets that they shoot on set a lot or the shooting locations a lot too Probably not cheap to make all those costumes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see $50 million on screen. Yeah, the big production numbers, they create a whole Rainbow Randolph set and then they turn it into a whole jungle set. There's a lot of work in it, but it doesn't look, I don't know, we think of those big budgets going towards stunts, right? There's no plane crashes. There's no car chases. Nope. All right. So you want to, we touched on a little bit, but do you want to see where the people involved in this went? Yeah. I, I don't think I need to tell you where Ed Norton went. Still a big star, still acting. He made his directorial debut in future episode, Motherless Brooklyn. So that'll be a fun one to talk about. Unless you subscribe to the theory that he ghost directed American History X, which is a popular theory. I've heard that. I know he locked the uh, director out of the editing room and basically edited the movie himself. Uh, Oh, shit. Yeah. They should make a fucking movie about the making of that movie. That's <laughs> quite wild. a story, but he's obviously still keeping busy. He's a fine actor, one of our better ones, just not yeah. maybe not the nicest person to work with. Yep. Uh, Robin Williams obviously tragically took his own life in 2014, but he worked very steadily up until this point. And he did some movies that were kind of in the vein of Smoochie. If you think about something, what was it? Uh, World's Best Dad, right? Was that him? Oh, I did not see that. Is that what it's called? Hold on. The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, I know, was another one he did that was like a profane comedy. He did. Yeah, World's Greatest Dad, which was a very profane and critically reviled comedy. So this didn't scare him off of this type of movie. It's more more edgy, jagged, R-rated comedy thing. He made a few of these in his time. DeVito, like I said, he would only do Duplex after this, which came out in 2003. Big bomb. He was done directing, but he's gone on to have a second life. 
as part of the Reynolds clan and a big part of It's Always Sunny. Yeah. And not to mention, he has a big career as a movie producer, right? Jersey Films is his company. And I think he was already doing that when this came out. Yeah, I think you're right. Because he produced Pulp Fiction, 94. Yeah, okay. So Jersey Films was founded in 91. Yeah, look at this. Pulp Fiction, Get Shorty, Aaron Brockovich, Gattaca, Garden State. We can forgive him for Garden State. I liked it at the time. If you didn't, you're a liar. I think I did. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Jersey film's still going. Which brings up an interesting question. As a director, this is a guy who could get a movie made. Like, he didn't have to be chased out of Hollywood by the flops of his final two movies. He could have produced himself in something if he really felt strongly because he had that clout. Did it just sour him on the process? Maybe. Maybe he was just done. I don't know. He seems like a level-headed guy. Yeah, you know, he's not a young man. Yeah. Yeah, he, He made his money. He's very successful. Maybe he had enough. Directing's not an easy job. No. Long hours, dealing with difficult people. Yeah. And then it comes out and everyone hates it. So I can understand not wanting to put yourself through that again. We touched a little bit on Adam Resnick. Like you said, longtime Letterman writer. He also worked on Saturday Night Live for one season. I strongly suspect that was when Chris Elliott was also on the show because they seem attached at the hip more or less. Yeah. He wrote and co-created the Chris Elliott show, Get a Life, and then wrote Cabin Boy, which was the Chris Elliott starring vehicle, the one, which I don't think was very well received. No. He hasn't written a movie since Death to Smoochie, or theatrical movie at least. He's done TV credits. He wrote five episodes of that HBO show, Divorce, with Sarah Jessica Parker and Thomas Hayden Church. It was well-reviewed. I didn't watch it, but people seem to like it. So he's still working. That was relatively recent. I think that was like 2017, 2018. Yeah, that sounds like good work if you can get it. Yeah, writing for HBO. Why not? So when the movie was released, seventh place it opened up in. Not an auspicious start. With a wide release. This is not in 400 theaters. This is in over 2,000 theaters. Okay. Opened with $4.26 million. It was even beat by E.T. Wow. That E.T. from the 80s, which had (laughs) been re-released a few weeks before this. and was still racking up the dollars. DeVito's like, fucking A, man. E.T. came back from the grave and clobbered us. Just to beat the shit out of my movie. <laughs> Some of the new releases that week were Panic Room. That took the top spot. Okay. The Rookie and Clock Stoppers. They all beat this movie. Yeah. And it would drop all the way to 13th place in its second week with $1.6 million. That's fucking, that's a huge bomb. We cannot under, underestimate. We cannot understate how. Yeah. We cannot, we cannot overstate how, <laughs> how bad this movie did. No kidding. That's bad. Yeah. I, I don't even want to say anything more about it because I feel embarrassed for the movie now. I don't want to like pile on them. Right. Yeah. We feel, feel guilty. Yeah. But even a movie like John Carter, which is considered one of the biggest bombs of all time, hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's still made hundreds of millions of dollars, just not enough. Yeah. But this one, $8 million theatrical is nothing. It tells you something about the built-in audience for a space epic and a summer blockbustery type of a thing versus a quirky R-rated comedy with a dark edge. It's yeah, if you don't get that right, there's no safety net. No one's no one's coming out. And I guess they hoped people would come out for Robin Williams, but it, it didn't happen. Right. So what's your take on this movie failing? What do you would you say is the main reason if you had one? Is it just the quality of it? The reviews came in, they weren't. I think it's got plenty of like decent quality elements where it didn't have to fall in its face so hard. So I don't know, for me, I can tell you why it failed for me is that it lacked a heart at its center. And not saying strictly that Ed Norton as the Sheldon character didn't display some heart, but the writers and the movie didn't love the Sheldon character enough to get real with him. I felt like he was still painted on the surface and there was nothing to really 
grab you. And he doesn't go through much of an arc. I hate to go back to my storytelling basics and attribute everything to that. But for me, it really matters. Like he wasn't conflicted. He was just trying to not get killed. Is that Does that make for an interesting story? I think the movie does try to give him an arc with his temptation to seek vengeance, whether or not you think that was really resolved by having the deus ex machina of the Irish mob come in and take the responsibility off him, vary by each individual person. I think it's a successful movie because of Sheldon and the Norton performance. Not a perfect one by any means. There's a lot about this movie I would change, but I walked away from it not regretting having watched it again after all these years away. And I think I'll probably revisit it every few years. There's definitely stuff in here that I really enjoyed and would make a point to revisit. Not just Moochie screaming, uh-oh, as he's getting murdered, <laughs> but other stuff too. Especially that. <laughs> but especially that. But yeah, we're a little bit of differing opinions on this one, but we're not wide apart. We're just, I'm giving it a little more credit for what I think it does well than I'm giving it demerits for what I think it does poorly. Yeah, it's on this knife edge where it really does matter what you bring to the movie, what you perceive the initial motivations of certain characters are. And so, yeah, it could go either way. I could see coming back to this movie in a couple of years and doing a rewatch and warming up to it and finding a lot more to love. All right. Well, that was Death to Smooch. That was a fun one. We've got to do more comedies. So we got a few on the docket, but good, yeah. good. But next week we have almost a comedy. I don't really know what to call this movie. One of the strangest movies ever. Tank Girl. All We're right. doing Tank Girl. We're going all the way back. We're covering Tank Girl from, I'm going to guess 91. What do you think? I just looked it up. So 95 later than I would have guessed. But Lori Petty, that'll be a fun one. I have not watched that movie since I was very young. And I mean, like, very young. Yeah. Like nine I years old. Young. Yeah. Full disclosure, I remember the name of that movie and that's it. I have no idea what I'm in for. So tune in next week. I'm curious to see what it is and what I'm going to make of it. Pretty sure Ice-T plays a kangaroo. So, awesome. <laughs> you know, that should wet your whistle a little bit wow. for, for what we've got in store. I am intrigued. So guys, thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe if you're listening on a platform that lets you do that type of stuff. Otherwise, uh-huh. we just appreciate you listening. We do. You can find us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. You can email us, suggestions, feedback, just compliments. Love the compliments. BlastZonePod at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. Oh, bless you.